Okay, open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 119, 121 and following. As we sang those, some of those words earlier today from the Psalter. And we're going to do two sections today, 121 through 136. And uh, as normal, we could spend much more time in this section, but we, we, we need to keep moving. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I will read the Word of God today. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to understand your word, not just as words on a page, but they would penetrate our heart. They would cut deep into our lives, Lord, so that we would seek after what they say, understanding that you have given us the ability to carry through and do what your word commands. Open our eyes and hearts today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 119, verses 121 through 136. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for thy servant for good, and do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for thy salvation and for thy righteous word. Deal with thy servant according to thy loving kindness, and teach me thy statutes. I am thy loving servant. Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken thy law. Therefore, I love thy commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all thy precepts concerning everything, and I hate every false way. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. The unfolding of thy words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for thy commandments." Turn to me and be gracious to me after thy manner with those who love thy name. Establish my footsteps in thy word and do not let my iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep thy precepts. Make thy face shine upon thy servant and teach me thy statutes. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep thy law. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, I hope you had a coffee this morning and are, uh, your mind is sharp because this is not a sermon for the unthinking. Uh, and given that the, the education level in Huntsville is typically uh, pretty, pretty high, the understanding is, is pretty high and that um, um, we've been together for so many years, uh, I think we're all ready for this, but uh, I want to say that that this will be a challenge today. So you got to try to keep up. <laughs> keep up with me. It's not hard to keep up with me, but you got to keep up with, with the word, okay? Now, now if you look at the sermon title, um, it says, Help for the Simple-Minded. What perfect place are we in that we can get help because we're simple-minded? Now, now there's simple-minded and then there's simple-minded. Okay, I hope you understand that. And, and I am sorry to say that I, have be, I am becoming more and more convinced that the modern 
evangelical believer. Now, that's a pretty broad statement. I'm going to admit that right off. The modern evangelical believer is pretty simple-minded. And I don't mean that in a good way. I mean that in a rather derogatory way. Um, as I read some modern writers, as I look at what passes for encouragement for holy living, and as I observe the larger church culture, I do not believe that we are any longer practicers of an intellectual faith, but we are only practicers of a feeling faith. Now, I'm, not, I'm saying that to the broad evangelical church. The evangelical church has, by and large, ceded the intellectual high ground to others. And we have increasingly claimed the subjective, the personal, and the feeling aspects of our faith. Okay, we have found security uh, and safety in what cannot be argued or disputed, which is my personal experience of God. Okay, it's my experience. You cannot argue with my experience, and, and this is where the evangelical church has retreated to. The good news for us in the more reformed aspect of the evangelical church is we tend towards the more intellectual and less towards the feeling. Now, there are their own problems in, in, in the intellectual, okay? Um, but we have a better balance than I believe than the larger evangelical church. Now, it's well known uh, by my, my pastor friends, and um, who, who was in my office this morning and picked up a book and said, this guy's not dead? Who was there? Okay, yeah, Claudia. Uh, and, and she looked at a book by John MacArthur and said, this guy's not dead. What's he doing on your desk? Because <laughs> I, I tend to read the dead guys, okay? Now, my, my pastor friends make fun of me because they'll have a discussion about somebody, and then they'll look at me and go, oh, well, he's still alive, so you don't know who he is, right? I said, yeah, that's right, that's right. Now, I do read some people who are still alive, okay? Um, but usually, I'm not that interested in, in some of the names that my other pastor friends throw around because uh, they're far more pragmatic in the application in the church and less of a long-term biblical view of what works given the things that Christ says. Now, in the big picture, in the work of Christ in the world, uh, and, and the battle against worldliness that keeps sneaking into the church, it is deadly to emphasize the now and the experiential and the subjective to the neglect of the great foundation that the church is built upon and that is thousands of years of study thousands of years of academic work thousands of years of picking apart the scripture and saying yes it is true yes this is good yes this is God's word not that I feel that it's God's word but it is God's word it is now I'm going to quote from a couple guys here today and this is all introduction to our passage, okay? So I want you to understand that. David Wells is a professor of history and systematic theology at Gordon-Conwell. And he wrote a book, No Place for Truth or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology. And in it, he talked about a, a concept of the weightlessness of God. The weightlessness of God. And he defines it this way. The little to no effect God has on the actual life of Christians. 
It is not that Christians don't believe in him or desire to follow him, but he is removed from our thinking, and his views do not enter in until after the fact. Now think about that for a moment. In our own lives, do we immediately think, when we come across something, do we immediately think, how does God want me to address this? Or here is a problem, I'm going to take it to the Lord right away. Or is it after the fact that we come to it and go, okay, Lord, now I'm going to pray your blessing upon the decision I've already made. Ooh, ooh, okay, that's not what we can do. It's not what we are called to do. Wells asked the question, has something indeed happened to evangelical theology and evangelical churches? And according to him, the evidence indicates that evangelical pastors have abandoned their role, and it's, it's... Largely, it's our fault here. It largely abandoned our roles as the theologian in residence, and that's that's what we are. Okay. Now, if you can go to certain uh, towns where there are seminaries and things, and there'll be better theologians than the local pastor, but our job is to be the theologian in residence. And and I I, I say this. Um, on a semi-regular basis, that you need to be able to walk away from Sunday morning or a study that we have done somewhere during the week with more and a, with more knowledge of Scripture, with a greater understanding than you could get sitting at home with your study Bible. Okay, and and if you get more from your study Bible sitting at home than you get on a Sunday morning here, uh, then I'm failing. Okay, then I, I'm failing. Um, he says that we are to be the pastors in residence and ministers of the word of God, not therapists, not managers of an enterprise called a church. So we, we have abandoned the, the heritage of Christianity for more of an interdirected experiential religion. And we've pitched out the academic. That's his accusation to the evangelical church. Now, Wells specifically explores this disappearance in, of, of theology in the church and in modern culture. Okay, so stick with me here. Western culture as a whole has been transformed by what this called the term is modernity, and the church has simply gone with the flow. Here's where society is, oh, and the church goes, oh, that's where society is. Let's go over here too. Okay, because this seems to be easier. It seems to be easier. It seems to be working. Okay. The modern world has produced an astonishing abundance, but it's also taken away from the human spirit. It empties it of meaning. It empties it of morality. And people today have increasingly turned to religions and therapies that are centered not on the Lord, but on who? Me. Self. Whether consciously or not, evangelicals have taken the same path. It's my experience of God. So what do I love? Oh, God, has, he's done this for me. Mm, what have you done for him? Okay, that's, that's the issue. We are here for what purpose? First question of Westminster Catechism. To glorify God. Not to get from him, but to glorify him with our lives. He says we've lost the truth that God stands outside of human experience. That he still calls us to repentance and belief and to holy living, regardless of how you feel about yourself. Ah, oh, man, my self-image is just so low. God still calls you to holy living. He calls you to glorify him. But yeah, but what about me? Maybe a little focus on him and a little less focus on me. Isn't that what John the Baptist did? I must decrease, he must increase. 
Wells says the fundamental requirement of the Christian leader until recently is not a knowledge of where the popular opinion is, but about what Scripture says. See, it's kind of changed. Historically, it has been, my job has been to say what Scripture says and to help you apply it in your lives. But that has changed now to an interpreter of modern culture, and we'll throw the Scripture in as well. Oh, that's bad. He continues. Relativism permeates the life of the church. Churches have given in to modernism in a variety of ways. Theology has been put on the wayside. Churches are more interested in the drama of the entertainment industry rather than in the preaching of God's word and the things of Christ and him crucified. As a result, he argues we've lost a Bible-centered theology. It's a self-centered theology now. It's not the things of Christ. It's how I live out and and then Christ helps me live these things out. If theology is lost, where does the gospel in most churches? Where does it leave the call to repent and be saved? Where does it leave the knowledge in general when we say, well, I'm okay and you're okay? Uh, we're not. You know, We'll look at that in just a second. Okay? Modernity has swept through the church. It's placed the mind of Christians in the off switch. Okay? I don't think, I feel. That's a danger. Finally, Wells says the disappearance of theology from the life of the church and the orchestration of it purposefully by some of its leaders is hard to miss. Vacuous worship, a shift from God to self as the central focus, psychologicalized preaching, the erosion of conviction, stride and pragmatism. Remember, pragmatism is if it works, we do it. Whether it's scriptural or not is not the issue. If it works, we do it. The inability to think incisively in our culture today, and the reveling in the subjective and the irrational. Ooh. Now, don't think that I'm saying we've got to be all head and no heart. I'm saying the danger is we've become too much heart, too much feeling, not enough thinking. Now, you say, okay, well, I never heard of David Wells. Did anybody ever hear David Wells? He wrote that book like 25 years ago. Okay, that was, he said, this is the danger of the evangelical church, and that was in the early 90s, and, and it's only gotten worse today. So I'm going to quote some modern guys. Mark Knoll, Christian historian, university professor, says, what's the largest single group, why is the largest single group of religious Americans, that's evangelicals, who enjoy increasing wealth, increasing status, increasing political influence, why have we contributed so little to the intellectual scholarship of the church? Now, you may not understand that that's the fact, but when you go and read, you can read a gob of evangelical writers. You can go down to Lifeway and you can get on Amazon and CBD and you can get gobs of evangelical writers. They're, they're typically, now I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, they are typically about this deep. They're just not very deep. How to have a better life, you know how to do this, how to do that. They are not intellectually challenging the church today. We have failed at sustaining serious intellectual faith life. And you think, oh, you know, Rand, I got, I got a job and I got kids, and now you want me to think deep thoughts about faith. Yeah, yeah, because that's what has been done for the last 2,000 years. It's only recently that we've really gotten away from that. 
Why have evangelicals failed at this? We've ceded the culture to the non-believers. We've ceded the intellectual culture, the universities, the arts. Uh, we have a, 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 you know, the evangelical problem is certainly related to the general intellectual difficulties in our world today, but there are those who are working hard to promote their intellectual view, and evangelicals in general are not, are not. How long is the attention span of the average person? I asked this in Sunday school. Eight minutes, okay? Now, we've gone longer than eight minutes. I hope you haven't tuned me out, okay? <laughs> That's why we put cushions on the pews, front, bottom, and back, so, so we can go along. Mark Knoll lays out four reasons evangelicals suffer from intellectual weakness. The first one is immediatism. Immediatism. That means we insist on action, decision, and even perfection. And when do we want it? We want it right now. I can order Amazon, have it here tomorrow, okay? Google something, find it right away. That's we're, we're used to having it right now. We want everything right now. We want our spiritual lives to be perfect when? Right now. I want God to act when? Right now. And he says what? Mm, I wait. I hate that word from God. He says, no, Lord, don't you understand my situation? He says, yes, I understand your situation, right? Well, don't you see how desperate it is? It's not nearly as desperate as you think. Why? Because... He is in control. So the first problem is immediatism. The second one is populism. It confuses winning supporters with mastering an existing situation. Well, I can't argue my point, but I've got 20 people over here who are going to shout you down. Ooh, we see that in society today. Okay? I don't have any justification for my point, but I've got 20 people on my side, so I must be right. The third one is anti-traditionalism. It privileges one's own current judgments on biblical things, theological things, ethical issues, over insight from the past. I guess that's why I read the dead guys, because they've chewed on it. They've looked at it, and, and, and it has stood the test of time. But so often, we judge reality, we judge truth. Again, I'm speaking broadly here. We judge those things relative to my existence in the world. You know? It's never been this bad. How many of you have heard, and this is just an example, the political, political climate has never been this bad before. Ever heard anybody say that recently? Except there was that unpleasantness between the states a while back. Okay? Okay? They, you know, they really, but they can only see what, what is within their lifespan here. And, and a lot of people judge morality and judge uh, biblical concepts and theologies and ethical issues without taking into consideration the work that has been done for the last 2,000 years on those issues. The scholarship, the study, the living it out in practicality, they just pitch it out and go, no, no, my view's right. And then fourth, and I'm going to define it after I tell it to you, so uh, it's a nearly Gnostic dualism. Gnostic dualism would rush to spiritualize anything that is physical. My body, the, the things that happen in this world, the material realities of this world, uh, we just spiritualize it. Oh, it doesn't really matter to me. Those are four reasons evangelicals are suffering from intellectual weakness, according to Noel. That last one is we spiritualize everything. We spiritualize 
everything. It's a miracle. And we, we discussed this in Sunday school. What's the difference between it's a miracle and it's miraculous? A miracle is the cessation of normal functioning and the intervention of the supernatural. And when the event is done, it returns to the normal functioning. That's a miracle. What's miraculous? Birth of a baby. That's miraculous. How many times did that happen today in Huntsville? Probably four or five already. Okay? That's not a miracle. A miracle is when society stops, God intervenes, and then society starts again. That's a miracle. We use these terms, we, we, we over and incorrectly use, it's, it's a miracle, God told me, the, the God led me. Ooh, we have to be very careful with those, those are so subjective, so subjective. Common generic evangelicalism and the, and the people who uh, are, are using it as activists do not possess theologies full enough traditions of intellectual practice or conceptions of the world deep enough to sustain intellectual revival within the church. We just don't. Okay? We've not done our homework. I mean, if, if you add all this up, it says we just have not done our homework and learned in the last 50 years. We've moved away from intellectualism and more towards the subjective. Now, can we find this in the church today? And I know you're going, Randy, we're on Psalm 119, aren't we? All right, we're just about there. We're just about there. Evangelical writer Eric Metaxas says, if Americans took a theology exam, their only hope of passing would be if God graded on the curve. Right? I, I can remember taking the Bible content exam it's, when I was at Pittsburgh Seminary. And here, because you have to take a Bible content exam to, to, to become ordained. And I'm, I sit next to this guy, and you know, it's my first time, and I'm the first semester, that's when they say you should take it. And I look at this guy, and I said, I said, is, is this your first time? He says, no, it's my fifth. Fifth time. He could not, all you have to do is have 70% to pass the Bible content exam. He could not pass the exam. I'm like, shouldn't you be you know, selling insurance or used cars or something? Why are you going into ministry if you don't know what the scripture says? Grading on the curb in knowing both the content of the Bible and the doctrinal foundations of Christianity, startling percentage of the nation, and the evangelical church embraces what have traditionally been heresies. And you think, so, no, Iran, really. The church isn't full of heresies. No, but individual believers might be. Let me give you some data on this. Seven in ten evangelicals, that's 70%. More, that's more than the population at large. Understand that. That's the church is worse than the population at large on this issue. Said that Jesus was the first being God created. Okay, who believes that Jesus was the first being God created? Not that you would. Okay, what group that's going to knock on your door believes Jesus is the first created being? Jehovah's Witness. Okay, that's one of their heresies. Seventy percent of evangelicals would hold to that. 56% agree that the Holy Spirit is a divine force, not a personal being. What does that negate then? Trinity. You're not Trinitarian. If you're not Trinitarian, you're not Orthodox Christianity. 66% of evangelicals polled, now that's about polled, admitted that most people are good by nature. Look at your neighbor and tell me their nature is good, okay? You know, 
What does Scripture say? All have fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which, which one of us gets out of that all? Not, none of us. How about uh, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Which one of our hearts is good in nature? Not, none of us. Okay, none of us. But so many think that we have a good nature. And if you have a good nature, what does that play out towards in the long run? I can save myself. God will have mercy on me just because I've got a good nature. I've been good my life. Evangelicals are suffering from this intellectual uh, lull in their brains. Unfortunately, they, they know more about the Kardashians than they do about their theology. Okay? Now, if, if some of you went, who are the Kardashians? Praise God. Okay? <laughs> Praise God. It's our desire in the larger evangelical church to copy culture. We lose our religious distinctives. We lose our theological emphasis when we copy culture because we begin to look like the culture. If you've ever been, and, and, and I'm, I'm just saying this is a fact, and I've, I've been to these places and I've seen it. You go to some large churches and it is so slick and so professional. You could go to the Von Braun Center and hear hollow notes and get the same show. That's the danger. Okay, that's the danger. I'm not saying that that they're lost faith. I'm just saying that's the danger. Should we be excellent in what we do? Yes, we should. For what reason? His glory. For his glory. There's tremendous danger in the evangelical church losing its connection to its academic, intellectual, traditional roots and replacing them with a theology that is pragmatic and subjective and experience-focused. Now, when was the last time you read Augustine? I, I didn't expect anybody to say, well, it was yesterday. I was breezing through the city of God. No, I, it, it, that's, I'm asking a lot there. How about Aquinas? No. How about R.C. Sproul or Ravi Zacharias or John MacArthur or J.I. Packer or Charles Spurgeon? Jonathan Edwards, John Gerser. These are guys that you can read that will challenge you intellectually. They're not, Augustine, unless you're really into it, it's going to go like this. Edwards is going to hit you right here maybe. Uh, but Sproul, Zacharias, go to YouTube and watch Ravi Zacharias for 30 minutes. You will be so much smarter than you are now. Okay, that's just the way it is. The guy's brain can hardly be contained in that head. And he argues so logically and straightforward. He goes and he talks to college kids on a regular basis. It is fantastic. It is just fantastic. You'll read the books from, that MacArthur and Packer and, and Gerser and all these guys put out. They, they are written for you. To raise your intellectual and theological level as an individual believer. Now... That's the introduction. Okay. <laughs> Go to Psalm 119, verse 129 and following. And the real emphasis of this is verse 130. The unfolding of thy words gives light. It gives understanding to who? The simple Okay, <laughs> the simple. So, where do we go for an answer to all these problems in the evangelical church? Right there. Right there. More of this. Deeper understanding of this. Jeremiah Burroughs, who's a, a, a 
great Puritan, wrote, the word contains matters to challenge the greatest of minds, the, of the greatest of minds, okay? And he really puts an emphasis on those who devote themselves to the study of the word. He says, basically I'm paraphrasing him, he says, you know, the world doesn't really put much stock in those people who spend their lives studying the word, but God does. Do you, does anybody know what theology used to be called? The queen of the sciences. Theology was the queen of the sciences. Okay? What's the queen of the sciences now? Chris Preston. Mathematics. <laughs> okay, mathematics. That's last year. Okay, so you understand how the focus of the world has shifted. This used to be the highest calling of intellectual pursuit the study of the word of God. Not so much now. He says, the Lord accounts those men the greatest that are employed in the affairs of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Hence the Lord would have the kings and the judges to have the book of law written upon their hearts and in their minds continually. He says, more than anything else, the word of God reveals to us that we should delight in his commandments. Now keep that in your mind. We should delight in the commandments of the Lord. What do most people like? They like the privileges of the believer. They don't like the commandments of the Lord all that much. Let's look at verse 130. It gives understanding to the simple. It does not only give knowledge, but it gives understanding. Now, how many of you are Jeopardy lovers? Okay. Do you remember when they played Watson at Jeopardy? Watson was the computer made by IBM. Okay. Now, it wasn't quite fair because Watson could, could buzz in faster than the people could. Okay. Watson had facts and, 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 and knowledge, just, just an inordinate amount. And he played, what, like the best two guys, that one guy who won for a month or something. Um, but what did not Watson have? Understanding. He had knowledge. He, the computer had knowledge. The computer did not have understanding. And that's a big dis distinction. Um, the Old Testament says what? My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Okay? Now, that means what you don't know might be your end, according to what God says, and it's stated directly to Israel, but it applies to the church. If we don't know the word, then we're in trouble. And, but it says don't only just to know the word, but to understand the word. To understand the word. Wisdom is really obedience to God because the consequences of obedience to God are what? They're blessing. If I'm obedient to God, I will be blessed by God according to God's definition of blessing. Wisdom is obedience. Obedience leads to righteousness. The true fear of God is wisdom. Those simple-minded ones who spend their gray matter studying the word or spend their free time studying the word, the, the world looks at them and goes, why don't you know the statistics of Alabama football? Okay? Well, yeah, but I know the word, and that's what's really important. Okay, because I'm not going to get quizzed on the Iron Bowl statistics when I get to heaven. Okay, that's not going to be it. 
What divine power rests in the word of God since it not only bestows light but gives the very eye by which the light is received? Scripture gives us knowledge, it gives us understanding, and the Lord gives us the eye to understand it and to see it. Verse 31, 131. I opened my mouth wide and I panted, for I longed for thy commandments. So intense was the psalmist's desire for knowledge and understanding of the word that he equated it with an animal that was panting for a drink. Think of Psalm 42. As a deer pants for water, so does my soul pant for you. Spurgeon said, like a stag that has been hunted in the chase and is hard-pressed and therefore pants for breath, so did the psalmist pant for the entrance of God's word into his soul. Nothing else would satisfy but the word of God. All the world could yield left him panting for the word of God. Why was he panting? 131, for I longed for thy commandments. The man of God longs for God's commandments, not his privileges. Okay, think about that for a moment. He longed to know them. He longed to understand them. He longed to apply them. He longed to keep them. He longed to teach them. He longed to be in obedience to the commandments of God. Now, many religious people long after the promises or the privileges of God. Not so much the commandments. Because what do the commandments do? Oh, man, they, they, they oppress me. They make me do stuff I don't want. Oh, but they help me be on the right path, the path of the Lord. Spurgeon was ahead of his time when he said, It's a sad sign when a man cannot bear to hear the commandments of God, but must always have the preacher promoting the privileges of the believer. See, I think Spurgeon, a hundred and some years ago, was addressing the prosperity gospels preachers of today. We love to hear the privileges. Don't give me those commands. Don't give me those commands. 133, establish my footsteps where? In your word. Keep my feet steady in your word. It is by his grace that he enables us to put our feet in the very place that he wants us to be. This is the grace of the Lord. I mean, it's a hard prayer to pray for the believer. Just think about it for a minute. That every distinct act of our lives, every step, every thought might be governed and ordered by the will of God. But yet that is the call upon our lives. That is where the believer is supposed to be. It's, not, I mean, it's a desire for perfect holiness, but it's a reality we will not achieve perfect holiness until we stand before the Lord. Completely cleansed from our sin. Let no iniquity have dominion over me. We ask and desire to do everything that is right. Lord, I don't want to be part of sin, but how many of us just seek forgiveness for sin instead of running away from that sin? There can be no sin that believers are willing to subject ourselves to. We have to pant for the perfect freedom from the power of evil. Are there problems within evangelicalism? Yeah. Yeah. We're weak. Weak up here. 
Okay? We might be strong here, but we're weak here. And if we're going to last going into the future, we have to be stronger up here. We have to understand why you know, men and women for 2,000 years have died to help us understand our doctrine, to help us understand what it is that Scripture teaches. We cannot think that we are everything in the last 50 years, that all I have to do is feel God's love. We feel God's love. We're called to know God's love, understand God's love, Where does that come from? It starts right here, right here in this book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us understand the benefits both of mercy and of grace. The mercy to be forgiven of our sins, the grace that has the power to avoid them. For if we don't have the second, we will never have the first. Help us to long for your grace. Help us to long for the deep things of Scripture. Lord, all the things that we talk about in this great topic of theology... They're there because they are practical and they are to be applied in our daily lives. We are to know more and more of you. We are to take captive every thought to the word of God. All of our lives are to be devoted to you intellectually, emotionally, all of our lives. Lord, help us dig into your word. Provide us a reminder on a regular basis that we might seek out those authors, those people who are going to push us to a deeper and stronger relationship with you. That our minds and our hearts would be devoted to the things of Christ and that they would be evident in how we live, how we speak, how we think. That there would be no weightlessness to you, that you would be a weight upon us knowing that you care, knowing that you love, that you would be our first thought in whatever situation we come face to face with. Lord, we want to be disciples of Christ. We want our lives to be holy. We want our lives to be conformed to the things of Christ. It will take work. But you give us the power and the ability to achieve this. Lord, open our eyes to where each of us needs to be here what we need to do with our lives, with our devotional lives, with our time spent with you, that it might be more profitable for our growth in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.